This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. What's going on, Anthony? Not much, man. I'm doing good. What did you do this weekend? I went, I did something I haven't done in a long time. I went roller skating at a roller Ooh, rink. Uh, yeah, on. It was kind of at like a little local multi-purpose center and we got to bring beer and listen to hip hop music and skate around on a rink. That sounds pretty chill. Did you fall? I totally fell. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> Can I it, see it, the bruise? It was bad. Yeah. I'm pulling down my pants right now. Oh my God. <laughs> now show me the bruise. Oh God. Yeah, I didn't do so hot on the roller rink. It was, it's was it been so long since I've done it. I used to go a lot when I was a kid. That's a very um, engaging, active task. You're put in this challenging environment. Strapping wheels on your feet. Yeah, that's clearly not normal. Yeah, I, I had a couple stumbles and fell down. And I guess it really gave me an appreciation for my sense of balance. I imagine so that in particular that that sensation was challenged during that experience. It really was. And speaking of that, I feel like this is another ham-fisted transition coming up. Oh, yeah. So your sense of balance, Matt, are you familiar with it? Yeah, uh, it it is a part of me. I hope you're familiar with standing upright. You're sitting up straight. Yes, yes, I am. You're not not falling over. Falling over. All thanks to my vestibular system. This is the sort of often neglected sensation. Some people call it the sixth sense. I thought the sixth sense was where you saw dead people. (laughs) The director's cut is about balance. It's not, it's less. That's the real twist. The real twist the is twist that behind the twist. Exactly that it's not about seeing dead people, but it's about being able to just walk down the street and not completely fall over. That's that's incredible. So presumably the person that you talked to today exactly. studies the vestibular system. That's exactly right. Today I spoke with Dora Angelike. She's a professor at Baylor College of Medicine, and her research has focused primarily on the vestibular system asking questions of how do animals integrate multisensory kinds of information and sort of stay upright? And how do they perform the task of being able to navigate and not completely fall over? So these, this system is sort of at the interplay between the sensory system and the motor system. It coordinates and performs both tasks. That's awesome. Like how does she conduct her research in terms of how she views the brain, like what is what is her overarching view on that? Her background in physics has really informed her way of thinking about the brain as a set of equations and a set of computational problems. So trying to keep an animal upright, there is a balancing act that has to be played between your muscles to make sure that you are able to navigate properly. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds awesome. I As you keep talking about the vestibular system, there's only one thing on my mind. What would that be? Do you know what the input, what the organ that is involved in these computations relies on? Uh, I kind of forget. What? It's the cochlea, dummy. <laughs> and I want all you to perk up your cochlea because we're going to listen to an episode about the cochlea, sort of, peripherally. But it's sort so of. cool. Let's do it. All right, let's go to the interview. All right.
Do you tell us where you grew up and maybe, <laughs> yes. yeah. I grew up in Crete, Greece. Okay. I uh, went to college in Athens. I was an electrical engineer and I did not really like being an electrical engineer. Why did you choose that or was this a uh, It was a compromise. Time? I wanted to study physics. Okay. And uh, my mother wanted me to go to medicine. We compromised to engineering. Okay. And then it's sort of sad because I ended up sort of, in a way, going to medicine, right? Yeah. <laughs> so is she happy about that? So, so I guess, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's happy. Good. I just had to do it my own way. What was, what was it like growing up in Greece too? Was that, uh, did you live there your whole, like up until college? Or? Uh, until, after my, after my undergraduate in Athens, then I came to the US to get my PhD. And I thought I was going to go back, but I did not. What made you want to come to the U.S.? Was it like, were you at that point decided that you wanted to be a scientist? Did you have a trajectory that you had in mind at the time? Um, I wanted to be a scientist since I was uh, in middle school. And that terrified my parents because they were afraid that I would not stay in Crete because it's not easy to have a scientific career in Crete. And they thought I would grow over the disease. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did not. Uh, <laughs> I, did not I did not. Uh, I did not get over it. I still have not. Yeah. And I think it's the right. Is it worse? It's yeah. the right job for me. This is really what I love to do. What about science speaks to you? I because I feel uh, free uh, to pursue my ideas, and I feel creative. I uh, like to learn about what I do not know, but fascinates me. So. Um, they pay me actually to learn. Uh, it's a great job. They pay yeah. you to learn stuff that you want to learn. <laughs> and that's the way, this is what I love about, uh, about science. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, I like also to change topics a little bit with time because then I go and learn something different that I was not familiar with. Yeah. You came to the U.S. to do graduate work then. Um, where did you go and what made you choose that place? So University of Minnesota. I better not tell you why I chose that place. My boyfriend at that time was okay. there. <laughs> you know, priorities were different. So I studied actually biomedical engineering, which was a good transition from my undergraduate electrical engineering. But then I took a class in neuroscience the first semester, and it was love at first sight. Who taught that class, do you remember? It was a medical school class, so different yeah. people taught it. But since that first semester, mm -hmm. I decided that I want to understand how the brain works. Cool. And uh, it's, it's, an it's a reverse engineering problem. Oh, so you've, you've approached it from an engineering perspective, yeah. yeah, what you've been trying to do. Okay. What are some questions that are, exist about how the brain works that you can approach it from an engineering perspective? Every, pretty much every question uh, that, uh, that I <laughs> yeah. ask. Okay, yeah, which ones um, do you like? It has a, a theory, computational perspective. It's not necessarily engineering. And even if something has not been connected with uh, theory before, I connect it, like mm -hmm. uh, the, my recent interest in uh, autism spectrum disorder, okay. um, that it's a computational disease. I, I became fascinated with this topic recently. There has been great work done at the uh, genetic uh, and molecular biology level, and they have identified hundreds of genes, and they have followed this further at the molecular level, but there is a disconnect 
between that work and how to connect it with the autistic phenotype. And the only way that I know to bridge levels of analysis from the molecular to the behavior mm -hmm. is through theory, yeah. through computation. There is no other way to do this. So this is that the, the idea that the brain's building up at from a, even from a molecular level, some kind of computation of input to output, right? Yeah, like the computer, which is organized with certain um, components, logic that is used for multiple functions. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that this is how the brain is built. And we know it's that's at least partly true because the cortex is both stereotyped, but there is a very stereotypic connectivity too, and the same is true for other parts of the brain. So perhaps this stereotypy really performs some type of what I call canonical computation, which can be a logic circuit hmm. um, that performs a given uh, function like a transistor. If, if it's repeated so many times, if we could get down to understanding how what that basic connectivity pattern would look like and what information would be running flowing through that, would that help us then yes. maybe if you could build that up yes. like a computer or yeah. something? Differ, yeah. The different components in terms of inputs, outputs, which is true. There are some there is some variability across the cortex, of course, but there yeah. is some canonical organization that is maintained okay. and we still do not know what that organization uh, does so how can we relate this then to disorders such as autism and could you could you briefly also just say what some of the phenotypes of autism spectrum disorder is and then yeah. so um so the most common phenotypes of course are um, the social and the motor and but it's becoming mm -hmm. increasingly clear that also they have perceptual changes and um, some are better in, in some aspects of perception they are better and some aspects they are worse and the beauty about perception is that traditionally it has been studied much more than the social interactions for example so we have better tools and to ask a little bit um, deeper questions about what is the difference between a typical brain and an autistic brain. And this is what I have been fascinated with because I, I am interested and I have studied sensory perception. So I just uh, wanted to learn more about this. So we have um, started some experiments, some fundamental behavioral experiments, but they were designed specifically to address specific hypotheses. The results are promising and combined with uh, some theory and some modeling then leads us to the next experiments that we can test the theory uh, further. Okay. I don't expect us to be right, of course. In the process, the I mean, yeah. this is what science is about. Yeah. Um, thank God most of the times we are not right and then we change our theory and yeah. I mean, in most of the times I tell my graduate students when we write a paper, typically I write about a hypothesis, but often I had the opposite hypothesis when I started the experiment. <laughs> so we don't have a preconceived notion, but we just go with our best guess in what we expect to find and then the most interesting result is to find that our hypothesis was wrong. Yeah. Do you want to talk about some of your results and maybe the theory that you were going into with how an autism disorder brain would look? So this is a little bit uh, more abstract. Let me just say it as simply as I can. So the brain is nonlinear. If the brain was linear, we wouldn't be able to do anything. Mm -hmm. One aspect that our brain does so well 
is that it can take in our sensory signals. If you think of the visual system, for example, if you really simulate what our retina sees or the retinal ganglion cells see, you will never be able to live your life in the world <laughs> because it would, uh, you for one thing, will get dizzy because every time you move your eyes, things uh, will move around. So it's and not good to be a retina, <laughs> to be living there. So the brain has to deal with this. So, yeah, so extract how, that information. Exactly. So how, so the brain has to take this rudimental information that comes in to our senses and build up the world create a mental representation of the world uh, based on these little pieces. And to do that, it has to create models. It has to create expectations. And this is what we learn uh, when we're young about how to interpret our world. If we lived in a different world, we would have learned that world. Yeah. So it's part of that learning of how to generate those models that can then help interpret the inflow of our sensor information that I think has gone wrong. Where do those models exist? Is that in the way in which the brain is wired to extract? We, we do not know that yet, but my hypothesis, which can be very simplistic right now, is that it's a combination of, of how individual cells talk to each other and the type of alteration that happens might not actually be the same for all individual who have similar phenotype. It could be that there are different aspects and that, that can explain the hundreds of different genes that have been identified to lead to the autistic phenotype. Mm -hmm. We cannot make sense of them. We know that they are um, related to synapses, the chemical communication between cells and they are related to the balance between excitation and inhibition, but it's not a single biochemical pathway. It's not anything clear or common. Yeah. So the hypothesis is that to understand what is common, we need to go to think of the brain like a computing machine. Mm -hmm. And then perhaps what is common is component of that computer, which performs a given function as opposed to a given gene or a given biochemical pathway. I see. Can we talk maybe about, since you've been doing work in the perceptual field for so long, I know that a lot of your work has also been done on the vestibular system. By studying the vestibular system, I achieved my original dream to study physics, right? Because okay. it's really, it's our sensory system that uh, measures physical quantities that we do not necessarily perceive as such. Okay. Our vision helps us see the world. Our audition helps us hear what is said. Our vestibular system measures accelerations, which is how we move in the world, but it also faces all the physics, all the limitations and the math associated with the physics in the world, okay. which makes it hard sometimes to understand. But it's very important when it works great. We don't appreciate, actually, we even have a sixth sensory system. 
but we do realize we do have it when something goes wrong. Yeah, like what? What's an example? Of that? I mean, if, if there is a, a problem in the inner ear, which is the vestibular system is housed next to the auditory system, mm-hmm. or a central problem in the brain that causes dizziness. Yeah. But an everyday example that we all probably have faced is um, motion sickness. Yeah. Uh, many people feel sick on boats. If you are inside the boat, so you see the room, the visual system tells you, the world is not moving, but the vestibular system measures all of those accelerations and yeah. it tells you you are moving. The two do not fit together and the brain gives up and that makes you sick, which is <laughs> which might be Just an evolutionary re- reaction to avoid doing yeah. because you cannot make sense of the world. Right? Mm. This is a situation, so at, at least that's the way I interpret motion sickness. We, we try to use these internal models we've created to interpret the world but when there is not an easy answer, get sick yeah. <laughs> and then stop. What you need to do when you are on a boat is just go up on the deck yeah. and look at the horizon and then the visual uh, system and your vestibular sort of agree. Mm. Another example is if you read while you are in a car yeah. and some people are more susceptible than others for the same reason, uh, when you read uh, you can get sick. Uh, you can get like I cannot read in a car. Yeah, yeah. Uh, after after a while, I get a headache and um, I close the book. Yeah. <laughs> and this is so. I I mentioned in my talk that the vestibular system is involved in autonomic uh, nervous system functions. Yeah, and anxiety. You said too. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. and also in non like blood pressure and things like this, which oh, yeah. are also very um, different from hot most people study. Yeah. Again, my hypothesis, which is probably again, probably wrong, <laughs> is that it happens uh, higher up in the brain, okay. that it is part of, uh, of these models we create to interpret the world. So, so this is related to, if I hear your voice and I see you, now that I know you, I can put the two together and create a picture of you which has both your image and your voice. And that helps us, helps my brain interpret what I see and what I hear. But if I hear another voice, which sounds very different from you, coming from the same location where you are, I don't necessarily want to connect the two. Or similarly, if I hear your voice coming from behind me, Again, something is wrong. Yeah. And then our brain has learned when to interpret these two signals coming from different sensory systems, let's say visual and auditory, yeah. and whether to interpret them as coming from the same physical source in the environment yeah. or that they are completely separate. And this process is not easy and it's something we do all the time, continuously. And without this, we cannot perceive the world. Yeah. And this uses this probabilistic framework that I described. Okay. And I think that's part of what goes, and my hypothesis is that this is what's one of the things that goes wrong. Using the vestibular system as a model, could you talk about how using that system has an, its advantages to studying these problems of how the brain you know, uses physics to uh, you know, integrate all this information? You can use other systems. Uh, yeah. I just use the vestibular system because 
I think it's unappreciated or underappreciated. It's not one of the five senses that we all learn in, no, uh, in, fact, uh, in elementary school. No, in fact, I even hear graduate students <laughs> talk about five senses. Oh. And then I said, there is a sixth. Yeah. And even sometimes in medical school class, I remember uh, we were always, there was a debate whether to put the vestibular system with the sensory systems or with the motor systems. Hmm. It's, I mean, yes, it has a direct influence to our motor systems, but for sure a sensory system. In fact, it is probably so multifunctional that that's why it makes it difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. So the reason I studied is because I, it is underappreciated and understudied, and it has many functions that I think are important. For example, I believe it has a big role in special cognition, in addition to all the other basic reflexes and basic motor aspects. I have recently suffered a concussion and uh, I know how I felt after that. I also have had um, twice in my life, I have this uh, benign problem that is short lasting. It's called PPPV. It's when the stones in one organ in your inner ear go to the other. But I suffered two or three episodes of that. It uh, starts happening as, as soon as you turn 50 many people. <laughs> it's very common. Yeah. And I studied myself how I felt oh, um, okay. during the time. What was interesting is that I felt disconnected from the world. Okay. I was walking on the, on the street. I could see stuff, but it's like there was a gap between me, my ego, myself, and everything else around me. Okay. And this is what I call special cognition. Yeah. I do believe the vestibular system has a, a big role in this and it has not, um, hmm. it has not been um, studied adequately because it's hard to study. Yeah, right. It's hard to quantify. It's an illusion, of course, okay. but our brain creates that illusion clearly because we misinterpret how we perceive the world. And that's a real thing. Using the vestibular system, what are some of the major contributions you would say to oh, what gosh, today you I talked over so long? Because you did a 10, 10 years in like yes, so did, yeah. in right 20 now, minutes. Because it's a, my midlife crisis, I will tell you I didn't, I learned nothing. Okay. So. <laughs> That's a much better answer. Okay. So I, there are lots of things I want to learn. Uh, then more. let's let's go there. What after by 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 you're studying this system for as long as you have? Okay. I, yeah. I love the Obama's Brain Initiative because it has allowed us to be creative without being boring. So typically, the classical way of funding in the United States through the NIH system kills innovation and... It rewards uh, the... I, I don't know what yeah. it rewards. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that f to understand the brain, we really need major steps in our, um, in our thinking. And if we use the traditional way, it might have taken us a hundred years. I hope that now with this accelerated process, it might uh, be much faster. Some of these attempts will fail because of course, they, I mean, we, not all of them are going to succeed, but we need to take that uh, big leap forward. Uh, otherwise, um, if we only do little steps that we feel comfortable and we can persuade all the critical reviewers that we have covered every possibility 
about what uh, we might find out in a study, I'm sorry, but that's not science. Mm -hmm. I better say also that this is the way it has, science has become in the current uh, funding climate. This is not how I. Uh, this is not the way it was before. So it has gone worse in the past uh, years, unfortunately, since yeah. the young people joined neuroscience. <laughs> but uh, I think it's coming back now again, where it it is the way it should be. We need to take risks. We need to think big. And there are some people in science. It's good to have both types of people. The people who like to think big and go after crazy, provocative ideas and the people who like to take it much more cautiously. And it's the combination of the two of them that actually makes progress. That's good, yeah. The brain initiative, did you guys participate in applying for that or did you um, like- Oh, well, recently, my, the only grants yeah. I get funded are the brain initiative. <laughs> okay. Grants. So- um, yeah. Has that allowed you though, to, like you said, be creative. Did that allow you to take a step in a direction you didn't Plan on I, I would never have, have been able to do that before. Yeah. And, and I think the same is true for all the other funded projects because they were viewed with a different framework in mind from the traditional study section. Okay. What's some of the stuff you're working on at this moment and stuff that this, some of these grants are going to help fund? Because of these restrictions placed by lots of things, the type of higher brain function had become very 20th century-like or 19th century-like. <laughs> um, it, it was great at its time, 40 years ago, but somehow we had not moved beyond that because to move beyond that, you need a combination of uh, achievements, both at the technical level, at the theoretical level, at the practical level that nobody will ever, um, it will take you years to get there. Mm. So as a result, I think neuroscience had stayed behind because the best we could do was to use tasks that have two outcomes. Yeah. There are three components for me in the US Brain Initiative that I love. The first is technology. Let's improve the technology we use to understand the brain. The second is theory. Somebody, I listened to a talk by Bill Bialik, uh, who um, referred to neuroscience being like astronomy was in the 1940s, <laughs> uh, that there was a revolution in technology and we could uh, see deeper and deeper into the sky and further, further back in time. But if we didn't have the theory to go along, to be able to interpret what we see and to be able yeah, we need theory. So this is the second part. That's I, I guess I'm just going to interject and say I feel that's the overwhelming feeling I have right now as like a graduate student too, and seeing that we're at this age where data sets are massive and massive, and we can look through them and look for ideas, but there's a lack of sometimes what am I looking for? I'm just so sometimes they compare the genome project with uh, yeah. the brain, but it's a huge difference. You can just use data analysis tools, and you can do it. But to be able to understand how the brain works, this is not a collection of genes. Yeah. Uh, and we will never achieve that without theory. And the third part is um, rich naturalistic behaviors. Mm -hmm. The brain was not meant, at least our brain, not even the warm <laughs> brain, uh, was not uh, meant to do a binary choice. 
yet this is what yeah. I studied the past 10 years and this is what neuroscience has studied the past 40. So these three things, technology for large-scale recording, theory, and natural behaviors, these are the most important aspects. Of yeah. course, data mining and how to store and share and all of this massive data, that's also a, a, an issue, but, but that issue is manageable and that issue we can learn from lots of other fields. Okay. But for these other aspects, we need to, we need to discover how would you suggest we train people to be good at theory? Uh, to me, that seems like one of the hardest things to teach someone because it involves noticing patterns, noticing what has been studied, but then somehow being creative and trying to like merge. That's the hardest challenge. And it's interesting how many universities try to, to do this now. So this is the best time in history that I know for computational neuroscientists, not those who do data analysis only, because sometimes people think of computational neuroscience is doing data quantitative <laughs> data analysis. I do that. I do quantitative yeah. data analysis. I don't consider myself a computational neuroscientist. I love to spend my time with theories so I can learn how to do my experiments. So I think it's clear that this is not something that you can learn overnight or in a month or even in a year. This will take years of uh, training. The people who have a more math or physics background, more quantitative background, have an advantage, but not necessarily. But clearly our training programs in neuroscience um, have to change in that way. And it's not easy and it's not always welcome by all neuroscience graduate students. So this is the challenge for the future at the level of training. Yeah. So in our program, we have tried to increase the requirements of to add some more uh, statistics and computational classes to our graduate students, but uh, only half of them like it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. but, but neuroscience is also becoming more and more integrated. So when I grew up, when I was in graduate school, you could have a career just for uh, being, uh, um, sometimes I compare it to the old mom and pop uh, bookstore or uh, supermarket. Uh, a little tiny room, um, you sell the stuff you sell, you don't uh, need to worry about anybody else, you work, you do everything yourself. This is not the way neuroscience, this is not the way actually everything is going, <laughs> but also the way neuroscience. So. I think graduate students need to realize that interdisciplinarity is something that you need to learn and you will continue learning, not just in graduate school, but later in life. I did not learn what I know from graduate school. Are you kidding? Mm. No, I, I, I still learn. If I didn't learn, I will retire. Yeah. And that's, this is what I like about science, the, uh, the ability to continuously learn things that you do not know and move in new directions that you never knew before. And uh, this is what it means to be a scientist. Yeah. And it's not for everybody. Definitely. <laughs> to like sort of wrap up and just to, to plug an earlier episode, we actually interviewed your husband, David Dickman. Um, could you maybe just talk about what it's like to be a husband-wife science couple? And uh, what? Um, yeah, that it's actually fun. But uh, it also has, I guess, its, um, its frustrations. <laughs> so there are two ways to deal with a husband and wife team. One is to accept the fact and work together. 
and there are some great successes uh, related to that. And one very recent success was the Mosers, yeah. a husband and wife team who just got the Nobel Prize. And I spent a few weeks in their lab and I saw how well fit they are together. Yeah. I saw that the combination of the two is much more than that, just the sum. And that's the best way. That's the advice I give everybody going in in the, in the future. If you can collaborate with your spouse. Yeah. However, this is not necessarily what we did starting off. That's again because of um, some short-mindedness. Or if you are not independent from your husband, you will never be successful. But, uh, some old-fashioned ideas yeah. that will typically discriminate, typically the woman in most cases. Yeah. So, so you, yeah, I, did the two of you start off doing... Um, so we started uh, doing things together. But then at some point we separated. I wanted to separate yeah. because I, I was discriminated. Intellectually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and now we are back together again. Oh, good. <laughs> so I, I had to reach this point through an indirect way again. Okay. But that's, uh, I think it's happening more and more that uh, there, there are teams, husband and wife teams, and sometimes they actually separate, they choose to do something later to differentiate themselves. And I think that's not necessarily smart. Just do this if this is what you want to do. But it might also yeah. be your um, uh, the way to be more successful. Since you like to learn so much, uh, is there any other things that you occupy yourself? Like, do you have any hobbies or things that you teach yourself uh, outside of science? Uh, with my job the last five years, yeah. I think I've, I have five different jobs so in the past five years i've worked seven days a week with the exception when i go to greece but going forward Man then, managing uh, all the different parts of your of the job or yes yeah because i'm the department chair and okay of course i have we have a family and uh, okay but but i i do learn um, love to learn so yeah. when i was young i wanted to become actually an astrophysicist, mm -hmm. believe it or not. <laughs> I would like to actually go back to this and learn something uh, different, a completely different field. When I get frustrated, this is what I dream of doing, going back to learn something different. But it's always related to learning. Yeah, I guess that's good motivation to be like, if you're frustrated with something, go and learn something new. Cause something yeah, different. Something will excite you. And yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Hope it was useful to somebody. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs>
you can let us know what you think by leaving us a review or a ranking on iTunes. Those really make my day. So thanks to anyone out there who's done that already. The music you heard on today's episode was by Lawrence English. The transition at the start of the show was Graceless Hunter from the album Wilderness of Mirrors. And you're listening right now to Patagonia off the album Viento. You can find his music at lawrenceenglish.com or his record label, room40.org. We'll post links to his music on our website. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.